Well, since the beginning of summer, we have been considering the I am statements of Jesus. And it helps us get to know his identity and get to see his works. And, and maybe a, a way that is fresh for us, something that may be, may be a reminder to some of us. We've looked at him as, as uh, him making the, the statement, I am the bread of life. Uh, I am the light of the world. We've got a, another one that we're going to look at this morning in John chapter 11. I invite your attention to John chapter 11. And as Stephanie said at the beginning, we're going to be jumping into a passage that, that has some really raw emotion in it. We're going to be coming alongside a grieving family. And uh, you may remember the names Mary and Martha, two sisters, a brother, Lazarus. And we're going we're gonna, to uh, jump right into John 11 where they lose their brother Lazarus. He is sick and he succumbs to death. They cry out for Jesus. Jesus isn't near them. And, uh, and he comes after Lazarus has died. And so again, just a, a, a passage that has a lot of emotion and, and, and maybe something in which as we, as we uh, hear and read their responses, it may be something we can relate to. Because uh, both of the sisters say something very similar. They say, Jesus, if you had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. They both say the same thing. It's as if they're, they're in, 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 in some way inferring a question. Lord, where were you? Where were you when I cried out? Have you had that question before? Do you think Mary and Martha had the right to be honest with the Lord when, when he approached them? In a, and they were, of course, in a reverent spirit, I'm sure, just asking. Do you think we can also approach the Lord with, with questions? As we walk through the, 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 the frailties of this life, maybe in the loss of a loved one, maybe in a diagnosis, maybe in a, in a financial hardship or a, a, a difficulty at the workplace, unemployment, all these things that can surround us. We experience broken relationships. We, we, have, we have children that, that stray from the Lord and all these things, they come upon believers too, don't they? Christians aren't immune from, from these kinds of challenges. And so, so maybe we also have had that question, Lord, where are you? Lord, do you see, see what's happening? We need you. We need you to, 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 to fix this, to change this, to come into to the experience that we're going through. Maybe you've been there. Maybe that relates to you. Maybe you're there now. And I pray that as we look at John 11, we will not only uh, hear the, uh, the words of Christ, but we'll also see how he comes near to a hurting family. Are you interested about what his demeanor might be? How he might approach these two ladies in their time of loss? Because what we can learn about how he draws near to them can also encourage us to know how he draws near to us as well because it's his character and it's his nature to come alongside the heavy-hearted, the broken-hearted. And so maybe today as we, as we read through John 11, it's a passage that may very well minister to you in your time of crying out, where are you? Let's jump right in. John chapter 11, and let's pick up in verse 1. Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet 
with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sister sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but it's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Now, that, that last verse might have been a little puzzling. In the flow of what we were reading about the way in which he loved and cared for this family, and, and he loves them, verse 5, verse 6, he doesn't go immediately to them. That's our first point this morning, the surprising delay of Jesus. Jesus doesn't go immediately to Bethany. For some reason, he is delayed. He doesn't just rush as soon as he hears the news. It, again, it's not a statement of whether he loved them or not. It was, it was for something beyond what was probably understood at that time. He was stating it, that there'd be a greater purpose in all of this, that the Son of Man would be glorified. But in that moment, can you imagine what it must have felt like? Or what the disciples that saw him must have been thinking? Wait, he got this information about a need. Certainly they wanted him to know so that he would come. And yet they're in an urgent, desperate situation. And yet he doesn't appear to have the same urgency. Have you ever felt that as you cried out to the Lord and called to him that, that there wasn't something immediately happening, that maybe there was like this, a delay? But the passage does tell us, of course, that Jesus eventually makes his way to Bethany. Let's jump down a few verses and pick back up in verse 17. It says, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. So we know that he waited two days before he left, and, and when he got the message, I'm sure it wasn't instantaneous, right? He didn't get the text message. He didn't get, a, get an email about it. There was some, some other longer way in which he was, he was found and, and got the message. So in total, it was four days that Lazarus had died by the time Jesus made it back. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews... Had come, to come, had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Now let's stop right there for a moment. Our second point is this. Jesus declares incredible truth. So what, she, what we just read about him coming and Lazarus being dead and, 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 and Martha making the statement that if he had been there, Lazarus wouldn't have died. It had been four days, and yet it's setting up the response of Jesus. He's going to give some words to her in the, in, the, in, the, in the verses that follow. She also has some words that she's going to share with him as well. But we, we see what may be uh, uh, an example here of someone coming before the Lord with an honest question. Again, I touched on this at the, at the very beginning. Do you see that, 
there's an implied question. I know she doesn't state it as a question. It's a statement. But you can read it and, and you can hear her saying, Lord, Lord, where were you? If you had been here, he, he wouldn't have died. It reminds me of Habakkuk, a prophet in the Old Testament. And uh, uh, you may have read his prophecy. And, and, and he's an example of, a, of another one who cried out with a question. Look at Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2. How long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen? Or cry out to you about violence and you do not save? Now that, that, is, that a, is that a gut-wrenching question right there? I mean, here's a prophet of God, a man set aside to speak for the Lord, and he comes saying, Lord, where are you? Look at, look at what's happening to, to your people. Look at the injustice in the land. We're crying to you about violence and you're not saving. Folks, let me just ask, is it, again, is it appropriate for us to come to the Lord with our questions? Is it appropriate to come and say, Lord, I don't understand. I don't see the way forward. In fact, I, I'm struggling to see where you are at in all of this. Let me just ask, have you been there? About a dozen of us have. Okay. Well, the rest of you might be someday, all right? Well, what I'm trying to get at here is that when we are in that kind of a situation, there are really a, a couple of different ways we can respond. And sometimes that response is to, is to, to be driven away from the Lord. It's a response that, 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 that is not a response of faith. It's a, a response to, to reject and to no longer listen or believe or to follow. Or there is a response that, that the Lord can bring about that is a response of faith, even in the midst of a hardship. Look at what Habakkuk says in chapter 3. He says in verse 17, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, Though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls, let me just ask you, have things gotten any better there? That doesn't sound like it, does it? But listen to his statement in verse 18. Yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. You hear that? Verse 19, the Lord, my Lord, is my strength. So yes, there are times that the situation doesn't appear to be greatly changed, but there can still be that understanding that the Lord is my strength. The Lord is with me. And I, I think what we see in the next verses here in John 11 are a powerful statement of faith. A lot of times when we think about a, a profession of Christ or a confession of the identity of Christ, we think of who? We think of Peter's profession, don't we? I want you to listen and I want you to read John 11. I know there's words of Christ that we're going we're gonna to spend a lot of time on. But before we get to them, would you take a listen to what Martha has to say? Let's jump back to John chapter 11. Let's continue reading. Martha said to him, Oh, actually, actually, let's pick up in 22. Yet even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at 
the last day. So let me ask you, in the midst of all this, do we see that Martha still has a faith? Even though she's in the midst of, of, of sorrow and sadness and even questions, right? She still has questions, but that, that faith is still there and it's shining through. As I said a minute ago, sometimes these scenarios can, can draw us close or at times we can, we can go away. Maybe you've heard of the name Ted Turner. He's probably the, the father of, of cable uh, television, founder of, of uh, CNN and, and other cable channels, I'm sure. Uh, Ted Turner, known for, for, uh, for being very wealthy, billionaire status. And, uh, and what, what may surprise you is that, that he grew up in a home that, uh, that professed a faith. But if you look at Ted today, he has, uh, uh, at one point in his life, he professed to be an atheist. There were times that he really uh, had a, a very antagonist uh, perspective towards the Christian faith. I think maybe some of that is tempered, but nonetheless, that, that's been who Ted was. But did you know that in high school, he had, he had an understanding that there was a God and that, that Ted Turner even thought about being a missionary? I just heard that recently. I thought that was so, so uh, uh, interesting. But something happened to him. When he was 15, his younger sister, Mary Jane who was 12, contracted a degenerative tissue disease. For several years, her, her body was just racked with pain. She was, uh, she was just living in, 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 a, in, a, in a very painful and desperate condition. She would, she would vomit. She would cry out. Ted would come home from school. He would hold her hand. He would try to comfort her. And listen, he even prayed for her recovery. That's right, Ted Turner praying for his sister, his younger sister, to recover. But after years of suffering and struggling, she died. The account that I read said that Ted's dad, whose name was Ed, said this, if that's the type of God he is, I want nothing to do with him. And that had a powerful effect on Ted. Uh, he lost his faith altogether, and he said, I was taught that God was love and God was powerful he would later say in an interview. And I couldn't understand how someone so innocent should be made or allowed to suffer so. And the suffering continued because in 1963, Ted's dad, Ed, woke up, had breakfast with his wife, and then went into the upstairs and took his life. And Ted, processing all of this, said, if that's the type of God he is, I want nothing to do with him. Now, folks, we could, we could give all kinds of examples like that, couldn't we? People that at, at one point, they, were, they, they, they at least had an openness to there being a God, some kind of a faith. And yet the circumstances of life have, have turned them from thinking of the Lord and drawing near the Lord and instead turning away from Him or saying that He doesn't exist. You may know people personally that have, that have had that kind of history. Is it true that God is loving? Yes. Is it true that God is powerful? Yes. Both statements are true. But there is also the understanding that, that there is a world, a creation, that is under the curse of sin. And that ever since the, the world was, 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 uh, uh, was influenced by the curse of sin, we have, we have seen the decay. We have seen the darkness. We have seen the disease. We have seen the brokenness. 
And folks, when that happened, it has affected all of us. And that's sometimes what we, what we struggle to understand is that we are all being affected by the, the broken world in which we live. Here's how Pastor J.D. Greer says it. He said, most of the objections raised against God about suffering are built on the assumption that we, as a human race, deserve good things. We are owed good things, and God is unjust for not giving them to us. He's saying that's, that's, that's kind of the, the way in which people approach suffering and approach God and thinking that, that all of this just isn't fair. We're good people and we deserve good things. What's wrong? It must be God's fault. Here's how he continues. The Bible, though, takes an entirely opposite approach. As a human race, we have rebelled against God, a rebellion we have all voluntarily participated in, and the just result of that was the curse of death. Now, we've got to stop and think about that for a minute because really we, we see that all of us are affected. Now, I know that we can all enjoy the, 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 the blessings of this creation, Yesterday, we, we had both, both rain and something orange that was in the sky that we hadn't seen for a while, right? And let me ask you this. Did the good people and the bad people of St. Louis all get rain yesterday? Yeah, okay. Did the good people and the bad people of St. Louis all get the sunshine briefly yesterday? Yes. That's how it works. We live in a creation that still has some blessing of God in all people get to experience that blessing to a degree, but we also live in a world that's been marred by the fall. It's not what it was created to be. And all of us, even Christ followers, we will, we will feel, we will feel the, the weight of that brokenness. And we will see it in, in sickness and in disease. We will experience it in, in the loss of a loved one and death. We will see it in the brokenness of, of relationships and, and, and all of these things we still experience because it's a result of the fall. We must understand that all people experience both God's provision, but also God, all people are affected by the curse of sin upon the earth. Now, having said all that, we know that there is a day coming, don't we? when the curse will be reversed. We know that there will be a day when, when, when the curse of sin and its grip will no longer have any hold upon us. There will be a day where there is no more sickness or death based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. But we're like those people in Exodus that have escaped slavery. They've been rescued from that, and yet they still haven't arrived where? The promised land, right? And so there they are. They're in between. That's where we are. We're there. And we know what's ahead, but we also know that we're still suffering to a degree from what has taken place here. So people respond differently. Some are like Ted Turner and his father, and they reject. But some are like Habakkuk, and I would add Martha to that list. Let's continue reading about Martha. She has more to say. She says, I know we just read this, verse 24. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. 
The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asks a question. Don't miss this. The end of verse 26. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Martha, do you believe this? Habakkuk, do you believe this? Ted, do you believe this? What does she say? Verse 27, yes. Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. There's the proclamation. There is a, a, a proclamation, a confession of faith probably coming from a face that is stained with tears. And yet, is she faith? Is she still uh, demonstrating faith? Absolutely. Strong, strong words. Strong words. Now, again, before we look at the words of Jesus, just pause and see this example of a woman of faith, even in the midst of difficulty. Here we also find the words of Jesus. He makes a divine declaration. He says, I am, this is the statement, right? We've been looking at these all summer. I am the resurrection and the life. Now, this is a powerful statement. It's actually a divine declaration. And his words here are a really big deal. Why? Because we're talking about life and death. And he has something to say about how he relates to this. He isn't saying, I know about the resurrection or I have access to a divine power that, uh, that, can, uh, that can raise people from the dead. He says, I am the resurrection. I am the power that gives life to everything. I am the source of all life. So is this, is this here a statement that we walk away and say, well, that Jesus, he sure was a good moral teacher. Or is this a statement where we say, that Jesus, he claimed to be God. Because if you continue reading John 11, the folks that were hearing him in that day, they got it. John 11 is known as the hinge. It's the turning point in the book of John. Because at this point, everything's going to be pointing to the cross. And the Jews and the, and the religious leaders at that time, in John chapter 11, they're saying, we've got to take care of him. Because if he continues to do what he's doing, they're all going to continue to follow him. Now, this statement is difficult for some because it removes the idea that he might merely be a good moral teacher. Jesus presents himself as the only solution to the problem of death. So it is, it is inconceivable that someone could pose the argument that I believe that Jesus is just a good moral teacher. Because what did he teach? He taught that he was God. He taught that he was the resurrection and the source of all life. So if he's a good teacher, we have to look at what he taught. And he's making some bold statements right here in John chapter 11. Now what he says to Martha is really a very theological statement about his identity. And uh, Jesus is going to demonstrate the resurrection and the life in a very personal way. As he's going to destroy the grave by being put in the grave. And he's going to destroy death by dying. And he's going to destroy sin by being made sin for us. And then he is going to demonstrate life by resurrecting himself from the tomb three days later. Yes, he is the resurrection and the life. And what we see here is the very nature of substitution, that he is becoming a substitute for another. Now, his power is going to be on display here shortly with Lazarus, but don't miss it. 
It's this point forward that is also looking to his resurrection at the cross. Let's look at uh, verse 32. We now turn from Martha and we consider her sister Mary. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, does that sound familiar? That's exactly what Martha said, right? When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? See, that's what they were all thinking. And in fact, as we read this text, we might be thinking the same thing, right? Why isn't Jesus telling Mary and Martha, just wait 10 minutes, right? Hang on. Here's a Kleenex, but just hang on. It's going gonna, it's gonna to change. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He comes alongside. And this is our third point. Jesus expresses deep compassion. Deep compassion. Now, the sisters say the same thing, right? They say the exact same thing. But does Jesus respond the same way? Is his response the same? No. He has this very lofty theological statement that he gives to Martha. But what about Mary? With Mary, he draws near, and we, we see the, the brokenness of a Savior who comes alongside to weep with those who are weeping. Don't miss that. Jesus sees Mary crying, and he begins to cry. Verse 33 says, he was deeply moved. The word here means he was expressing such deep emotion, it would have sounded like a groan. And in this case, it was a groan that was weeping. He's feeling himself the suffering and the sorrow of this family, and he enters into it. So here's a principle to remember. When you are hurting, Jesus hurts with you. When you are hurting, Jesus hurts with you. We see it right here. We see that when Jesus has this love for this person, just as, as we look at it and, and say, okay, I have a friend who I love and, and I see them hurt, tell me, what, what happens to you on the inside? When you see that friend of yours crushed and broken and weeping, what happens? If you really love them and care about them, what happens? You feel it too, right? So we see here in this context that, uh, that, 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 that Jesus is, is reacting as a loving friend. Jesus knew that what Mary needed wasn't a theological answer. What was it that she needed? She needed a Savior who felt her pain and would weep with her. And folks, let me just add, many, many times when we are coming alongside a friend who is grieving, hurting, broken in, in, in different circumstances... Sometimes what they're really needing, in some cases, isn't the answer. It's not the right-worded statement. It's the fact that they see that you care, that you're with them, that, that we weep with those who weep. Heartfelt compassion. 
Now, what is interesting about the the two ways Jesus responds is that we see him both as fully God and what? We also see him as fully man, don't we? Because with Martha, he's he's making this divine proclamation as God. But with with Mary, he comes alongside and, and you see his humanity, don't you? This idea that he is both fully God and fully man. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Yes, he is divine, but he is wrapped in what? He's wrapped in humanity. And I know it's hard for us to, as humans to understand this, but the Bible teaches that Jesus was at the same time fully God and fully man. The theologians have given us this this statement, the, 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 the hypostatic union, meaning that, that he has both of these natures at the same time, and one doesn't diminish the other. He's fully God, he's fully man. And in John 11, don't we see a snapshot of both of those? Here's what Tim Keller says. He says, some people need what Jesus gives, the ministry of truth, which is what he gives to Martha. Sometimes people just need the ministry of tears, which is what he gives to Mary. He's the only one who can give you exactly what you need when you need it. Truth or tears? Have you been there where you needed the truth? Have you been there where you needed to to find in the word of God a statement of hope, a statement of truth that you needed to know for sure that Jesus was the Lord of this life, that he is the resurrection and the life, and to know that that truth, that gospel promise, it was something that would be like an anchor that you could cling to? Can I ask you, church family, have you been there? And have you also been there? Where you needed that shepherd that the Bible says is like one called alongside to help. To know that you have a a Savior who himself has suffered and can in some way relate to your suffering. Church family, have you been there too? Where you needed to know this is a God who understands. Listen to how the author of Hebrews describes it. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. This is, this is the Jesus of John 11 being described here In the book of Hebrews, this is the one that we come to in time of need. Well, you've probably noticed, as I have, we've run out of time. We've run out of time. I know know you're saying that. You said, okay, it's it's time. But we can't leave Lazarus where he's at, can we? I mean, come on. We've got to see how this ends. We can't do one of those to-be-continued things, right? Okay. Here's the fourth point. Jesus indeed defeats death. Look with me at verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there is already a stench because he has been dead four days. 
Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me. But because of the crowd standing here, I said this, so that they may believe you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out bound hand and foot with the linen strips and with his face unwrapped, uh, wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unwrap him. And let him go. Now, folks, can you imagine the scene? Can you imagine what was happening with this crowd of people surrounding this tomb? Lazarus, come out again. Look at verse 38. Jesus is described as being deeply moved. Again, what did I say earlier about this phrase? It is something that describes strong emotion. It, 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 it's used to describe a, a sound, a groan. And in the other case, he was, it was a groan of weeping, of sympathy. But not this time. This time, this roar of, song, of, of strong emotion is, is used to describe one who is about to be victorious. Here is how John Calvin explained it. He says, this word indicates Jesus is about to enter the ring like a wrestler preparing for a contest with a hated foe. The violent tyranny of death, which he came to overcome, now stands before his eyes. Folks, don't miss this. Jesus is approaching this tomb, and his eyes are fixed with strong emotion against that very enemy that is a result of the curse. And he's coming face to face. His, his anger is not with Mary or Martha or Lazarus or anyone else there. His anger is fixed solely upon death itself. Here's how B.B. Warfield, theologian of the early 1900s, he describes the scene this way. He says, Jesus advances to the tomb, not weak and sniveling, but as a champion preparing for conflict. John uncovers the heart of Jesus as he wins our salvation, not in cold unconcern, but with fiery wrath against our enemy. What comes to mind? What comes to mind? Cue the music, right? Cue the music. Here he is coming, coming face to face with the tomb. It's Jesus versus the death. And he is coming to do what? To be victorious. Now, Now, you're going to have that song in your head all day, right? I, we're going to be humming it out on the way out the parking lot. But he's defeating death itself. He is the resurrection and the life. Folks, this is our Savior. This is our God. This is the one who can defeat the greatest enemy that any of us could ever have. And he wins. Now, the other thing that's interesting here is that in this event, the raising of Lazarus, 
would at this point take Christ eight chapters later to the cross himself where he would once again defeat death. This time, he would do so for you and for me. This victory is what achieves what will one day, what we will one day experience in fullness. Look at Revelation 21.4. Last verse of the day is this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. And we know why, right? Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Church family, they've been defeated by the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Let's take a moment and bow together. Let's respond to what we have read today. I'm going to ask our prayer and encouragement team, you can go ahead and make your way over to the tables on the left. How do we respond? Maybe for some of us, it's the idea that we have the question, where are you, Lord, on our mind today? Maybe we think he's been delayed in responding. Maybe you're here and you're thinking of a hurt that you need to bring to him because you see today that he is a compassionate Savior who wants to come alongside and weep as you weep. Do you need his compassion? Or maybe today you need his truth and you need to know that, that he is the life, he is the Savior, he is the one that you can put your trust in. If you have any questions about what that means, here's the invitation. The invitation is to come to Christ. Let him be the one that, that takes your life from where it is and, 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 and cares for you as only he can, both in this life and preparing you for what's ahead. You might have a question about that. We have a, a team, a prayer and encouragement team over on the left side. And during this next song or when the song's over, I invite you just to drop by and see them. Maybe you want to know what it means to, to have salvation in Christ. You want to know for sure. You want to run to him not away from him. Maybe you've been running away for a long, long time and today is your invitation to come to him. Or maybe the, the burden you're carrying is one that you just need to share with a brother, share with a sister. Let them pray over you and with you. Let them extend in some way this grace and compassion that Christ offers. But to each of us, let us hear the question that Jesus asked Martha. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Heavenly Father, we pray that you will take this time, that you will take your word, that you will illuminate it, help us to understand it, help us to believe it, and help us to see you as you come alongside a, a world that is broken, a world that is hurting and you alone come bringing life offering resurrection God I pray that even today there can be souls in this room that come to you as our counselor as our shepherd and our savior may you minister now 
And may we respond. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. And all of God's people said.